0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's July 14th, 2021, and I'm your host, Marty Bennett. Today on the Midweek Roundup, we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. And before we dive into those questions, I'd want to give a special shout out to those participating in the live chat on Wednesday afternoons here on the East Coast. Also, those who watch us on repeat, either on our YouTube channel or back on the Facebook page for SMIE Consulting, and those that download us each week and make us a part of your podcast listening. Thank you so much for being a part of our SMIE family. And for those who aren't familiar, we take all of our news stories that we build into questions that we answer here on the Roundup. We take those from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays each week. Uh, That's called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, Uh, and that comes out Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, You can subscribe free. I'm dropping the link to the most recent edition of uh, the newsletter in the chat on the Facebook page, but you can go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe to see all the past editions of the newsletter as well as uh, links to recordings of our Roundup uh, podcast and live channels. So thanks very much uh, for being a part of the journey here at SMIE Consulting. Here are the three questions we're going to cover today. First up, what should we do with Chinese STEM students? Second, how are you leveraging peer recruitment? And third, are you going to the Education USA forum this year? Let's talk about all these three questions that we have been hearing today uh, from international educators, and let's get to those answers. The first question, what should we do with Chinese STEM students, is a complex one. Uh, We all know uh, over the past, not uh, even going back before the Trump administration, there were concerns about uh, intellectual property theft, uh, spying uh, through... Chinese military-affiliated uh, sources coming to the United States, embedding as researchers and students at our institutions, and then stealing technology uh, back to China. Uh, and US universities have done, uh, d- due diligence is probably a generous uh, uh, phrasing for how they've handled this process. Uh, many institutions have run in, run up against uh, some legal issues with, Um, faculty and researchers that are now, uh, that have been brought over that are now, uh, and ones that were American citizens that were involved in these uh, uh, kind of thousand talent projects that uh, the Chinese government had initiated across the globe, uh, trying to expand their influence in the world, uh, also through the Belt and Road Initiative, which we've covered uh, many times here on the Roundup. But uh, in particular with STEM, uh, the, there was interest on the part of the Chinese government to learn more uh, as a country, to build its resources, and uh, to, in some cases, take very uh, uh, liberal uh, use of their opportunities for their, uh, their people to study abroad, particularly in STEM fields and particularly those who had uh, ties to what they call the civil-military fusion strategy. Uh, in China and that the U.S. has uh, read, flagged and brought about uh, significant change, particularly in the Trump administration, but the lawsuits go back uh, pre-Trump as well. Uh, some lawsuits even popping up uh, since uh, Trump uh, left office that are impacting either Chinese scholars and students that have had military ties uh, through family or through their uh, sponsoring university or sponsoring organization that have come to the U.S. and have been flagged up and Uh, and are now legal proceedings uh, against them. So uh, that is a particular worry for security in the United States, national security interests in the United States, intellectual property uh, that uh, is created on university campuses and the ownership of that. Uh, those are things that, uh, frankly, uh, China has not not spent a whole lot of time and energy defending. Uh, they're uh, are relying on uh, international practices on intellectual property law um, and that type of uh, practice, standard practice in the in the world for the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, but certainly, what we see have seen is that there, in, in the government's eyes, there's been China's attempts to uh, to make the most of their ta- their students and scholars that the- are sent over here uh, with the intent of potentially uh, taking state secrets, not necessarily state secrets, but certainly new technology. And those in the STEM fields are the ones that have been targeted most specifically by the previous administration. And that certainly is uh, has been an area of concern. Uh, so the question is, what do we do with them? Because uh, right now uh, there have, uh, the equivalent of what Chinese students in the Trump administration were going through is what, what the, the administrative processing for Chinese, Chinese STEM students. Uh, That was a pretty broad net that was cast and it covered a fair amount, about half of all Chinese students and scholars that if they went back home or trying to renew visas were being put into this uh, kind of administrative processing time frame. Uh, It's akin to what I think a lot of uh, Muslim students did post 9-11 with uh, particularly male Muslim students had extensive waits, months waits uh, for their visas to be processed, often Uh, resulting in in failure. But uh, some of those similar trends have happened with uh, Chinese STEM students, particularly during the Trump administration after that uh, administrative processing piece was put in place that gave them extra scrutiny uh, on their visa applications or visa renewals before they were allowed into the country. Uh, So uh, China has, has seen openings with Trump departing and perhaps uh, a desire on the part of Americans to move away from the confrontationalist policies of of, uh, of Trump uh, in some circles with China, uh, and that uh, China is seeing this as an opportunity to end what they call the toxic Trump era visa rules for students, and they're couching this in. in this is uh, out of Newsweek. It's also covered in the uh, uh, South China Morning Post, and they're both both of them refer to a China Daily article. Uh, that uh, speaks specifically to the, uh, th- to the issue of this toxic policy. Uh, so this is something that uh, uh, China Daily is it's the Chinese Communist Party mouthpiece uh, has accused Washington of playing a hypocritical role by encouraging American universities to enroll Chinese students, but then not granting visas to over 500 students who got offers in majors in so-called STEM, science, technology, engineering, math subjects. So uh, these students had been accepted for doctorates and master's degrees at some of the top institutions, Harvard, Yale, Johns Hopkins, MIT. And they were rejected under the Immigration and Nationality Act and Presidential Proclamation 10043. And that's uh, the proclamation that uh, uh, Donald Trump put in place uh, in 2020, May 2020. That accused Beijing of using students, according to this Newsweek article, uh, to acquire sensitive U.S. technologies and intellectual property, with the aim in part of boosting the capabilities of its people, the people's, of its military, the People's Liberation Army. So, uh, that these the, and China Daily is saying a quarter of these of Chinese students denied visas had won scholarships. Most of them had submitted visa applications after the new administration of President Biden had taken office, but were were denied in this most recent round, since visas re, visa processing reopened in China back in early May. So uh, China is obviously positioning itself uh, as all oh, the the. The, the aggrieved party with our poor students who have won scholarships. And there 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 certainly maybe some in that mix that are uh, are do have have are completely above board and, and show every uh, intention of being legitimate students and not being those that would deny um uh, would, would attempt to steal technology and that type of thing. But it is uh, immigration law, well, immigration uh, by presidential proclamation, that restricts uh, the entry of the civil military fusion strategy that we talked about, and have mentioned many times in the past, uh, and restrict those students' entry. And in the scheme of things, there are 300,000 students uh, that are from China, over 300,000 in the United States studying at various levels. And for and when this when this went down in May 2020, the thought was that it would be 3,000 maximum uh, that, that that were in that initial sweep, and that certainly makes sense. It's a it's a, a, a very small minority of the Chinese. Uh, students that are in the United States and and doing quite well with their studies and are all above board and no ulterior motives suspected, but you look at what's happening with with China uh, with what they're using these 500 students that would be coming and looking to come in the fall, uh, mostly for advanced degrees as kind of the the, the uh, sacrificial lamb so to speak 500 uh, compared to 3,000 last year, uh, whatever it might have been the numbers might have been there the they're they're now framed as these are all of our students. Well, clearly they're not. It's a it's a very small sliver of uh, the total population, and it, with legitimate concerns on the part of the U.S. government in terms of protecting intellectual property rights and and, pro- and intellectual property in general, uh, that these these uh, these uh, these students are being denied visas. So certainly I, I'm I'm supportive of that practice uh, in terms of. Uh, Preventing intellectual property uh, from the United States being taken home, taken abroad. Um, so this is something that I think will continue on. It'll, it'll be, there'll be a lot of posturing and bluster on the part of the Chinese, and we'll, we'll stand our ground. I would hope, uh, and in terms of protecting our, our national interests, as just as China would. Uh, and uh, what we see as a next step. Uh, there is the the counterpoint to this is that by doing so, by even though the, what turned out to be initially a very broad STEM restrictions for grad students in particular, it got narrowed down. That's something that we we forget. Uh, the, initially, the the Trumps, uh, as, as he often did, was cast a very broad net, and then the re- reality is the net was tightened to a very specific group of uh, individuals. Uh, Initially, you wanted to restrict all Chinese grad STEM uh, applicants, Uh, and that would be of the uh, roughly 150,000 graduate students, Uh, from China, um, maybe I think half of them would have been in STEM fields, and that would be a very significant chunk, obviously, a quarter of uh, of the Chinese students in the U.S. If they suddenly weren't able to continue, that would be very damaging. So I think that initial policy of all STEM grad students from China got narrowed down to ones with uh, ties to PLA uh, in China and the Chinese Communist Party in general uh, that those ties as part of that civil military fusion strategy uh, would be denied visas and that's what this group I think of 500 uh, is who they're talking about. Uh, they'll, the, they'll never admit that on the Chinese government side but certainly that's, that's at least from the U.S. rationale uh, and articles that, that, that do talk about this say that uh, this is actually a very small uh, percentage of, um, uh, of, of of Chinese applicants, visa applicants, and that it, uh, the U.S. government says that they they are still welcoming uh, Chinese students and, and the, from the embassy in Beijing. Uh, so the, the the counterpoint is that uh, the U.S.-China tech war uh, it is having impacts on potential student interest uh, from China, at least. uh, That we're, some are arguing that we're shooting ourselves in the foot, technologically speaking, uh, by uh, not uh, the China initiative uh, that the Justice Department is pursuing of suspected tech thieves and spies. It's chilling the climate for scientists studying and working in the United States. And the crackdown comes as the US faces a severe shortage of digital talent. Uh, and that's re- related to AI type, uh, type roles. So we're seeing these kinds of things and, and the impact, particularly from China. Uh, and the question is, are there, in this particular area, are there other countries, the response would be for me, is are there other countries that can fill that void that we could be better partners with uh, on the tech front and uh, would be worthwhile ex- ex- expanding those relationships? Because uh, our, our, if we move in another direction, that's clearly going to be China's loss because uh, the US is seen as that uh, that, that that innovation pot of uh, uh, like uh, we used to be a melting pot in, in the United States now we're a mixed salad apparently but um, what i think the similarly that we're an innovation pot here in the in uh, in the United States and an innovation engine if you will and they governments that want to perhaps shortcut their uh, country's route to success will go to where the where the big ideas are coming and being developed and seek ways to, to leverage that and to uh, potentially uh, take it take take advantage of that and our openness and our willingness to share uh, and this is something that we'll see in terms of uh, how that plays out long term but uh, with regard to China it's uh, it's it's the it's the 800 pound uh, Gorilla in the room—that's uh, yeah, no one wants to deal with our or anger too badly. Uh, uh, poke with a stick, a bear, whatever, you, whatever metaphor you want to use, uh, use to to uh, to describe the relationship. No one wants to 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 upset them so much where they walk walk away. Uh, but in this world economy, in this global, uh, increasingly smaller global world that we find ourselves in, uh, those relationships can never be completely severed. Uh, that there is too much interdependence uh, with our countries in terms of the economies, in terms of debt, in terms of all sorts of relationships that our countries have. And education is certainly a big piece of that. Uh, So I doubt there will ever be a point where those ties will be completely severed. But it will be a lot of bluster. Uh, But it's a matter of uh, what seeps down to the average parent uh, who's sending their sons and daughters over uh, That's uh, how willing they're going to be to still go down the road. If uh, it's worth worth any 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 hardships that uh, our son or our or our family might experience as a result. So we'll see what happens on that one. But uh, certainly a big question to uh, to discover uh, future answers to moving forward. Now next up is a topic that is near and dear to my heart uh, in terms of. Uh, how institutions are are best reaching future students. Uh, And this is uh, always the challenge in international education, particularly international student recruitment and admissions and enrollment management, is the the facts of how do we best bring in a class. Uh, For those that uh, have been following my series with IDP Connect, through what I've developed over the past year called the six P's of Strategic International Enrollment Management. The final uh, P in that, uh, that that series was published last week, uh, it's called, uh, th- this P is called PEERS, the six P's of Strategic International Enrollment Management, number six, PEERS. And we'll talk about peer recruitment in an answer to the question, how are you leveraging uh, peer recruitment in your international student recruitment strategies, but also throughout the international student journey, and that's the larger piece of an international enrollment management. Because uh, the concept, as we've talked about in the roundup before, of enrollment management has been around since the late 70s, started at Boston College, and had uh, developed uh, into uh, really an all-encompassing uh, view of. Recruiting students and, and enrolling enrolling those students and managing their enrollment. Uh, that's it's once they're enrolled, it doesn't stop when they become a freshman or a first year student. It's there whether the, this is where you got the concepts of student of retention and pers- eventually persistence and graduation rates, where became all the rage in the in the 80s and 90s. And you saw, and into the 20th, 21st century, you've seen a whole industry pop up and up around enrollment management. Uh, many uh, colleagues who uh, started in admissions uh, where it was just admissions office now are in enrollment management offices and might where it becomes a much broader focus of uh, student success uh, throughout their time on campus. And that, uh, for domestic students, that's really become uh, with increased focus on advising, increased focus on career services, increased focus on uh, academic advising throughout uh, throughout their time, uh, writing centers popping up, and all of these things from the 90s onwards really became centerpieces of how student life was seen as it's an enrollment management piece, it's enrollment services that we need to provide to keep students engaged, to keep uh, students uh, part of the university community or college community. So internationally, uh, there's never really been a version of that that I think has been applied successfully uh, outside of a few institutions that have had through Uh, through the volume of of, uh, students that they've had over the years, the diversity of countries and uh, perhaps an all-in-one office that handles all things for international students from uh, initial recruitment to enrollment and uh, orientation advising and programming as well for students. Those campuses are few and far between but those are the ones that probably have the closest thing to uh, a Strategic International Enrollment Management Plan. And having that, and when I talk to institutions about this concept, it's really, uh, it's called the six P's because it focuses on uh, what I call um, a purposeful pros- prioritization of people. Uh, that process uh, where you're purposefully prioritizing people. And it what we do in enrollment management in international enrollment management, and this, is a broad term and it's kind of a little bit confusing because in NAFSA terminology, IEM is for the recruitment and admissions and, an, and English language programs and IEPs and all of that uh, at the front end of the, of the recruitment process and kind of ends after they enroll. Uh, but uh, then ISSS kind of takes over the, those, the next phase of their, the current student life. But the reality is international enrollment management is a combination of both services and um, for current students as well as uh, prior uh, the the recruitment process. Uh, and when I talk about strategic international enrollment management, I'm talking about the whole international student journey, up to and including uh, career services and uh, helping them get jobs and alumni status, uh, and having an active international alumni corps. Very few institutions do. Uh, and this is something that uh, when you when you focus on the full breadth of that student experience, that complete journey of the arc you want future students to take to become successful graduates. This is a view that when you have that mindset, when your campus takes that mindset uh, and looks at it as we, and we've all heard the phrase, it takes a a village to enroll a a student. Uh, But that also means it, it takes a village to keep that student. Uh, and to grow that student and to mature that student to become a successful contributing member of society after they're done with their degree. That's the goal of any institution that enrolls students, right? So they want their graduates to be successful. And international students don't always rise to the top or even in the the short list of things that uh, institutions focus on. Uh, in their uh, enrollment management process. So what this SIEM model, the Strategic strategic International Enrollment Management model that I've been talking about, relies on is a focus on that entire journey and have the international office kind of obviously serve as the focal point for that but not the be-all and end-all. They're the ones that need to drive the conversation forward because they're the advocates for those students, the international students that uh, don't always get um, first service uh, from uh, staff on campus uh, or uh, are even thought about in uh, because of the complexities and issues involved for employment matters uh, at the highest levels in the career services offices. Some campuses, it is working, and those are the ones we want to celebrate. But for the most part, uh, there's little thought paid to that entire journey. And one of the things I talk about, and that's why I'm getting to the sixth sixth P of the Strategic International Enrollment Management Series. Uh, is peers and the importance of peers throughout the student journey, not just at the uh, recruitment process where you're trying to encourage prospective students to apply and eventually enroll, it's throughout that journey for having uh, international student mentors for new students when they arrive, to having uh, friendship families, to having um, conversation partners, uh, those kinds of things that uh, provide students that kind of, I can talk to this person because they're, they're, they've been in my shoes. Uh, this is the, this is the per- kind of person we see as the as, as, uh, as someone I can look up to, that I want to be like, that I see myself developing as a, as a, as a strong individual, uh, future success story. These, the people like me, uh, the ones who are international that have shared experiences with me, they're the ones that I can learn most from. And that is the, that philosophy is something we've uh, I've I learned early on in my days in college admissions and from within even though I was working at my alma mater uh, that I had studied at for four years of undergraduate two years of batch of a master's degree and I my first job was working there in the admissions office telling everybody how great the university was even though I was a former student uh, I was an employee I wasn't uh, living it at that time and even though it was six years removed from my freshman year experience. Uh, I thought I I could still tell that story well, but the reality is future students don't look to you, even though you have that student experience, they'll they'll value that in some way, but it won't have as great an impact as a student who's on that campus living that story, their story, the future student's story, uh, living that right now. And I was told, hey, our students are our best recruiters. And the more uh, we—that's why we had them as our tour guides for people, for students that would visit campus. That's why we had them on the phones, uh, calling, doing calling campaigns to students that had applied or uh, were in the process of applying to admitted students. All of that. Uh, so. That times have changed. And it's not always going to be calling campaigns. Maybe it's uh, WhatsApp messaging uh, to uh, to those students from your current students to future students from your current students. Uh, it's leveraging them throughout the enrollment process, uh, from Ask Me Anything's where you might have uh, student chats uh, to virtual open houses where you have specifically time available for uh, future students to talk to. Uh, current students to hear from their experiences. It's from having video testimonials that you can share share online through your social media campaigns and your communication plans uh, to having, if you have large concentrations from any one country, having country-specific or region-specific chats where those conversations can happen in native languages, Uh, that to have admitted student events that really bond those future students to uh, current students after they've been admitted. Uh, You can even go peer to peer when it comes to parents, where you might, depending on how sophisticated your enrollment processes, your tracking processes are, uh, where parents, particularly for undergraduate uh, admissions, you having parent, current parents uh, be available to chat as part of a pre-departure piece for current, for from for current parents to talk to future parents uh, to pre-departures and involving those uh, those students from. Uh, from your key markets uh, in those pre-departure orientations, where they're connecting with the new the new arrivals, and that can be uh, a set group of peer ambassadors or student ambassadors you might have international student guides, however you want to call them. Uh, I've seen a lot of different variations on that, but the challenge is I think in the U.S. Uh, we're actually behind when it comes to leveraging students in an organized way particularly during the enrollment management process Uh, there are many campuses that have peer-to-peer advising peer-to-peer events counseling for for students once they get on campus but which is good and solid and very important in the overall enrollment management process but uh, at that front end uh, there are few and few that are doing it well here in the united states uh, a recent uh, my article in uh, covers this for um, in in the IDP Connect. The link apparently is not working to that article. So what I've done is I've uploaded this article onto uh, my 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 uh, my SMIE site as well. So it's there, and you'll get a link to that in the chat as well. But uh, for uh, for for peers in the U.S. Uh, Compared to our our competition, the UK, Australia, Canada, uh, the UK right now has about two-thirds, 100 out of 150 universities are using a formal peer recruitment model uh, in their programming uh, for uh, enrolling students. Australia, 33 out of 52 institutions, colleges and universities, uh, 63% are using. Uh, peer recruitment. And for U.S. and Canadian institutions, only 150 to 200 are currently uh, out of 4,500. So that's less than 5% are currently using uh, peer recruitment. And whether that's through uh, a third-party provider like uh, Unibuddy or um, uh, Ambassador Platform, the Ambassador Platform TAP, uh, or something homegrown where you've just had a had a series of international student ambassadors you make available for regular chats, or they they're the, they're the the students that uh, staff your uh, like online chat times on on your websites that and or regularly scheduled chats through Facebook whatever else you might be using. That in the U.S. we're behind, and that's frankly a surprise to me when I first heard of those numbers earlier this year. But the reality is, it's it's a piece of the puzzle that doesn't really get paid enough attention. I know. Uh, I know many, many institutions will put uh, a priority on having student employees uh, and then just having them really do application sorting or grunt work in the office, but never really give them something substantial. And I've seen other campuses where they make, uh, they give scholarships that are tied to their service uh, to promote the institution. And part of that service that they've devised over the years is to have them involved in emailing uh, future students chatting with future students and that in that sort so I think there's a lot of uh, important uh, data that we can that, that certainly shows that we've got some room to grow here in the United States uh, in, in how we leverage our current students to uh, to adopt uh, uh, adopt a, a student to student model that uh, can supplement and even drive a lot of our international student recruitment pieces so as I talked about it, and the article kind of sums up with uh, what I when we get, we talk peers as its last part of the six Ps, and it's not like it's an afterthought; it's actually a driving force. Because when you look at it, when you peer to peer, that's that priority is that student, uh, that person, uh, by prioritizing their needs and 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 trying to get them to connected to the people that will help drive them drive their decision making process in the most uh, practical way and effective way. So I think there's some really important examples that we can be leveraging in our work. I'll be talking more about the six Ps uh, in the coming coming months as we I work with different institutional partners. I'll be uh, bringing them in to share their perspectives on how the six Ps are working. Hopefully we'll have a NAFSA session approved for the next conference, which will be in Denver in May of uh, 2022. Looking forward to that, getting out to uh, to see some family out there, and also to present on this topic. So hopefully we get some more, uh, more, more examples of this to share in the coming weeks and months. But we're looking forward to that. Now, last question of the day: Are you going to the Education USA Forum? And yes, this is a shameless plug. Yes, I used to work for Education USA for a number of years, but there was good reason for that. Uh, I, uh, one of my fir- my first mentor in international education. Uh, he actually told me back in the uh, mid-90s that uh, overseas advisors, that's what Education in USA was called before 1999, uh, edu- these overseas advisors are going to be your best friends in, in, in your job in international education. Uh, Because they're going to be the people on the ground in the countries that you want to recruit in that can help give you the insight that you need in terms of the student market in terms of access to students and uh, assistance with those students that do apply to your institution or interest in your institution. They'll help you. Uh, in ways that you, can, uh, you, you can't even count right now uh, in terms of credential evaluation services or just help understanding uh, how system works in different countries, how end of uh, secondary school exams go and those types of things. These are the people that will help you no matter what you do. And it's so true. I mean, I've seen examples of this in my own life, where advisors I met back in the, in the in the early in the mid '90s, I'm still friends with today. They may be retired uh, from their jobs, uh, but some of them are still active in education circles. Certainly, my time working with Education USA certainly revealed to me, uh, from 2008 to 2014, uh, working directly with them, uh, the advisors out in the field. They're the heart and soul of the network of Education USA. They are what makes. Uh, the, kind of the, so symbolic of 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 American higher education as well the, the, in terms of where they're located, how they're structured, and it's in so many different ways, places, and ter- faces, and terms and arrangements that they're in. But they are fantastic. Uh, the thir- the f- thirteen now fourteen reacts that are part of the the network of kind of over, uh, advisors for uh, uh, our coordinators for these uh, advisors in different regions are all attending this. Um, uh, the uh, Education USA forum virtually uh, at the towards the end of the month last week in July I uh, even though it's virtual uh, it's still a great way to get the kind of the on the on the on the ground content that you need uh, an expertise you need to help supplement what you're doing in your planning uh, finding out how they're going they when they're going back to in-person recruitment uh, what their processes are because uh, it's going to be different uh, everywhere in the world. So uh, an important event and certainly one that will help you, I think, develop strategies that you can then leverage uh, to back on your own campuses to uh, for recruitments in terms of where you might be able to travel to this year for events. I know uh, there's a European re- uh, regional workshop for education in USA. It's running uh, in the fall in Serbia, so I know that might be attractive to a number of uh, a number of institution reps, but certainly uh, taking advantage of Education USA. Particularly, it's a free forum too. Uh, free Education USA forum. Uh, the first one was in, uh, 2000, in 2010 that uh, I was uh, very fortunate to be a part of, uh, where we launched the Education USA Global Guide. Uh, that's still going strong and a great resource and great takeaway from events like this. And I'm sure that'll be part of uh, what's uh, what's distributed virtually uh, during. Uh, during the uh, conference at the end of the month. So definitely encourage everybody to attend. If you haven't already registered, please make an effort to do so. So that's all we have for you this week. And until we speak again uh, on the 21st of July, have a wonderful week and enjoy the summer when you can. Cheers.